in any environment, basketball, business, whatever, it's competitive. It's wildly competitive. And when you put people in the pressure cooker of a competitive environment, who they are comes out. From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. In 1991, I interviewed for a job at Cree. As part of the interview, we played basketball at lunch. Not your typical interview, but really effective. I would later come to realize that you can learn a lot more about a person and their ability to be part of an innovative team on a basketball court than you can asking questions in a conference room. We don't often associate basketball with innovation, but like any other business or industry, there are major innovations happening in this sport constantly. The rise of advanced analytics, new focus on positionless players, and the ability to track more and more aspects of an athlete's life and workouts. Each team is looking for innovative ways to gain a competitive edge. Success in basketball and innovation ultimately comes down to leadership, bringing a group of individuals together to strive for something that many think is impossible. I was fortunate enough to speak to one of these leaders, Steve Wojciechowski or Coach Wojo, the head men's basketball coach at Marquette University. Not only is Coach Wojo intimately knowledgeable about the game of basketball, but he has more experience than almost anyone I know in recruiting people. It was fascinating to learn about how he determines if someone has or can be taught the will to win, how he balances treating players fairly, which doesn't mean the same, and how he hopes to teach his players lessons that they can use outside the game of basketball. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Steve, welcome to Innovators on Tap, and thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So there is a story I read about back in the days when you were being recruited to play basketball. I believe that Coach K and Dean Smith both came to see you play at a high school soccer game, which, one, is pretty unusual to start with. But I'm curious, just looking at you, you know what, if I were to meet you on the street, you'd look more like a soccer player to me than you were a basketball player. Did you ever seriously consider going down a path of pursuing competitive soccer in college and beyond, or was basketball always kind of your first love? Well, I don't know if basketball was my first love uh, as a young kid. I think my first love was soccer, and it was a sport that I had a lot of success early on. And then I hit the age of uh, 12 and 13, and I just fell in love with the game of basketball. And that became my passion. You know, if I had free time, I wanted to play basketball and tried to uh, seek that out at every chance I could get. However, I did play two sports in high school. I played soccer all four years, obviously played basketball four years throughout high school. And in the fall of the calendar year, in September, you're allowed to go into high schools to visit prospects. Most of the time, you're going to visit a prospect as he's doing a basketball workout. However, the fall was soccer season. So if they wanted to come see me and visit with me, they had to come to either a soccer practice or a soccer game. And it was a bit of a surreal moment 
where you know you're we're playing a soccer game in the inner city of Baltimore, and on one end of the soccer field is Dean Smith and Phil Ford, you know, two Hall of Famers, and on the other end was Mike Shashevsky and Mike Bray. I'm not sure they've ever been to a soccer game since, but they were at that moment. One of the things I've learned both in these interviews, but also in some of the work I did at Cree when we were doing leadership development is how you grow up has a tremendous impact on people, you know, really setting a foundation for them, their beliefs that drive them later in life. How would you describe how you're growing up helped build some of the core values and beliefs that you have today? You know, I tell people all the time, I've been the benefactor on being on great teams my entire life. The best team I've ever been on is the Wojciechowski team. The role that my parents played in my upbringing, whether it was watching my father, you know, go to work every day, go to the docks, hard manual labor, never complain, always show up and did his job to the best of his ability. The care and love that my mom provided in the home, uh, you know, shuttling uh, my brother, my sister around all the things that we were committed to doing and uh, the love that they showed each other. The one thing I, I think for for them, they always held me, my brother and sister accountable for doing the best we could do, for treating people the way we would want to be treated. And it sounds very simple, but the constant reinforcement of those two messages. If you're going to do something, then you do it to the best of your ability and you treat people the way you want to be treated. And that's that's the way I grew up. You know, the, the older you get with the ability to have hindsight uh, on your side, you realize that that's not necessarily how most people grow up. And so because of that foundation, I've been able to associate myself with outstanding people and uh, have a certain degree of success. When we were doing our research, we found a story that uh, was recalled in, in an article that said, when you were about 18 months old, you were diving in or jumping in the deep end of the pool. You'd swim back and do it over and over again. And so I think you were described as a very high energy, high intensity kid. Is there a player since you've been in coaching? that has come to match your level of intensity? Um, <laughs> you know, I've been fortunate to be around some unbelievable competitors, you know, and I'd hate to just draw any of those guys away from the group of guys that I've gotten to coach. But there, there is a competitiveness and a fire in every great player that I've been around. Now, it can manifest itself in different ways. I think if you watched me play, I was I would be described more as a rah-rah, vocal, in-your-face type leader. Uh, I think competitive fire can be shown in different ways. You know, the guy, guys that I've coached, you know, I think in terms of competitiveness, you know, Shane Battier comes to mind. Uh, I think he has competitive greatness. But he didn't necessarily do it all the time in the same way. There were times when he was very vocal and in-your-face type of leader. There's times where he put his arm around guys when they needed it. He has competitive greatness. I think J.J. Redick was another guy that I marveled at his competitiveness. He had an, uh, uh, just an, a unique fire that allowed him to play with an edge that he needed to be you know, one of the, the greatest college basketball players at all time. And, you know, the, we've we've had guys here at Marquette that have, uh, I think, are really good competitors. I think Marcus Howard uh, 
has been a guy that has uh, just a competitive skill that's allowed him to do some incredible things for a young player who, you know, probably looks more like a soccer player than a than a basketball player too. So, um, you know, I've been very fortunate and I admire guys that on a daily basis can bring a certain level of competitiveness and focus to their to their job. So basketball was invented in 1891, and first college game was in 1896 between the University of Chicago and some students from the University of Iowa. As, as you think about the history of the game and where it's at today, what are some of the changes that, you know, even from a player to a coach you've observed? Well, I think the game has changed even from when I was playing drastically. The game is always and will always be about people and getting people uh, to maximize their own individual talents and then bringing them to the group to, to maximize the group's ability. The tools that we have at our disposal to get to know people and make decisions on people and on teams are much more sophisticated than they were when I was playing. And that sophistication is across all levels. You know, we talk about sports performance. The tools that we have now to measure guys in terms of where their body is, uh, the toll that we're putting on their body, you know, how much they sleep, you know, what they're putting in their body it is incredible. And then, you know, the the analytics to, uh, you know, how you study players, how you study teams. You know, usually when I first started coaching and certainly when I was playing, it was all about feel and, and the eye test, you know, and you could, you, you had a feel for ways to defend guys. You had a feel for player tendencies. You had a feel for a team tendencies, but you didn't really have the data necessarily to back it up. Now, this is a data-driven profession where you use analytics to study the people you're recruiting. You know, you can watch a kid and see him hit five threes in a game and say, man, he's a great shooter. But then you look at his stats over the course of the summer and he's shooting 31% from three. That game where you saw him when he's on fire is not indicative of who that kid is, you know, over, over the course of a, a spring and summer of summer basketball. It allows us to figure out for our own team, are we playing the way we want to play? You know, we're able to have it at our fingertips at a moment's notice, and we do it every day. It's much more sophisticated than it's ever been. And, you know, I think the analytics field has, has grown immensely especially in pro basketball. And like most things, it, it has seeped down to college basketball, and I'm a believer in it. Uh, you know, I think it's an important tool in your toolbox, but it's not the only tool. I'm glad you brought up analytics because, uh, you know, I know that the game is kind of described as a game. It's about three-pointers, free throws, and layups. Right. And I looked at Kareem, mm -hmm. Wilt Chamberlain, and Shaq, yeah. and none of them were three-point shooters. And other than Kareem, the other two can't shoot a free throw. So you have your opportunity to coach a team today, and you've got those three guys. Would they be relevant in today's game? Yes, yes. And uh, the reason being is that, uh, you know, they're unicorns. You know, I mean, they're, I think they're, they're outliers. I think when you talk about Shaq and Kareem and those guys and, and Wilt, Bill Russell, they would still have – a place in the game. And they were so good at what they did that you you would adjust your system based on their talents. However, most guys aren't Kareem, Shaq, and Will Chamberlain. And so 
as you say, the game has gotten to a point where the numbers say layups, free throws, threes, and that's what you want. And they say statistically the worst shot you can take in basketball is a contested post-up. That being said, there's still a place for post-play because it doesn't take into account necessarily getting fouled. And that's not only the guy in the post, but it gets you one one uh, foul closer to the bonus. And if you're a good free throw shooting team and analytics prove this, that's an advantage. So, you know, I, I think if you if you have a guy who can score on the low post, it's still it, there is still a place for that. I think especially and more so in college basketball. You know, so I I, I don't think I don't uh, necessarily agree with that uh, totally. However, your your offense needs to be built on the things that are going to give you the greatest return. I was also reading an article about the Sacramento Kings owner who uh, supposedly recommended to his uh, coach, he said, I want you to basically play four on five on defense and leave a guy back down on the offensive end and then just cherry pick. And the assumption was, I think we're going to end up getting scoring more than we're going to give up by playing four on five. What do you think about that idea? Not a fan. Uh, you know, again, I think uh, ideas are great, right? I mean, at least it, and, and especially ideas that uh, are very unconventional because it, it tests, you know, why why don't you like it? And I think those things are, are good as well. You know, I, I don't believe that uh, a defense of four players over the course of a 48-minute NBA game can stop five NBA players from scoring. Do you think in college where you don't always have five elite offensive players, it might apply more? It, it depends on who you're playing. And I think in preparation, you have to prepare to beat the best teams on your schedule. And so is that, is, is that a style that would allow you to beat the best team on, on your schedule? And, and usually the best team on your schedule has five, if not more, really good players. And so I don't know that it would be something that we would – you know, take uh, time to to work on. So last year, uh, the team made great progress on defense, but more importantly, it was once again elite offensively. And that's been for several years now. But, you know, you were in college probably more known as your defense, for your defense. Um, In fact, I think you were National Defensive Player of the Year as a senior at Duke. Does being a defensive-minded player make it better at thinking about offense creatively? I think the perspective of somebody who hung his hat on defense and not necessarily offense uh, as a as a college player is helpful. You know, I had to run an offense in college even though I wasn't a primary scorer. So I think my experiences as a player have helped me as a coach because I know the things that a defense did to, to make me as an offensive player uncomfortable, our, our team uncomfortable, that disrupted the game. And then having to def- defend different things that were hard for a really good player to defend. And, you know, that's I think those lessons, um, those that time period helped shape some of who I am as a coach. So when you got here, you obviously didn't have the same level of talent. But since then, obviously, I know you've brought in some talented offensive players. Is there an innovation or something you've uncovered during this time that's kind of made it work for you? Offense always looks better with good players, number one. So we've tried to recruit really good players. But then we've we've given our guys, for the most part, the the freedom to play within concepts to where everything we do on the offensive end 
does not have to be a play that I called or a set that we run to get good stuff. Although there's times in games that we do that, you know, out of bounds situations, one of those, one of those times after timeouts, one of those times. And we were number one in the country in that area. But over the course of the game, I give my guys a lot of freedom. And instead of teaching them to run a play, we try to teach them how to play so that it's not necessarily guys playing like robots out on the floor. They're playing like basketball players. You know, your description of we teach people how to play instead of what plays to run, that's a very Jesuit concept. In fact, about a decade ago, Marquette came out with something to try to describe what it meant to be Jesuit, and it was called Jesuit 2.0. And what Jesuit 2.0 basically said is we don't teach you what to think, we teach you how to think. Yeah, I I do think it's really important to teach guys how to play the game. I think it's, I don't think it's done a a lot. You know, I, I was very fortunate in my basketball career. Obviously, I'm most recognized for my time at Duke, but my my basketball career obviously started well before that, and it was rooted in the fundamental teachings of the coaches that I had up through high school. And they they taught me how to play. And that was, you know, that, that was very valuable for me as a player. And, and hopefully our guys would say the same thing. So you talked about how basketball is about people. And when I first interviewed for my job at Cree, my initial interview was included playing lunchtime basketball. <laughs> and I survived it and I ended up getting the job. But we then did that for several years. And I didn't appreciate it in the beginning, but it was probably the best way to get to know someone before we hired them. Because what happens in that moment on a basketball court is who you really are comes out, you, you're you forced to react. So for us, it was a great way to essentially not interview people for their basketball skill, but could they be a part of our team? I mean, you're a professional recruiter of people. When you look at how someone's playing, what do you think you can tell from someone, whether you're watching them play or you're playing with them? You know, I, I think we have, uh, you know, as, as again, a recruiter of people, we get to see people in a competitive environment all the time. Playing with somebody, as you said, that is the best way to get to know someone in any environment, basketball, business, whatever. It's competitive. It's wildly competitive. And when you put people in the pressure cooker of a competitive environment, who they are comes out. When we're recruiting an athlete, you look at both the tangible and intangible. And the tangible is easy to see. Like, is he a great athlete? How tall he is? Do he have long arms? You know, is he is does he have skill? Does he have feel for the game? Things that you have a pretty good feel just watching. The intangible things you learn in a competitive environment is is, you know, what kind of teammate someone is. Do they look their coach in the eye when he's trying to teach and coach them? How do they treat their teammates? And, you know, in the business world, yeah, you obviously you can look at somebody's resume and you can talk to them and get a great feel. If you do have lunchtime hoops, I mean, I think that's a great opportunity to see like, okay, do who we think he is, is that who he is when he's put in a competitive uh, environment? And if he or she is, that's a, a, a great thing for you to know as somebody who's recruiting them or hiring. You know, you were quoted as saying that uh, I always wanted to win. I always had an intensity in me of fire. I'm not sure where it comes from. And as I've studied innovation, both at Korea and in other companies, there is this will to win that 
gets people through those tough moments, that when they hit that wall, allows them to keep going. Do you think this is something that you're born with, or do you think it's something that you can learn or be taught? I think both are true. I think some guys are born, or the way they were raised, have something a little extra. However, I I do think you can teach uh, competitiveness and tough mental and physical toughness. Now, it takes time, and some guys attach to it quicker than others. But I do, I do think you can you can enhance somebody's competitiveness. You can enhance their fire. You can teach them, you know, what it looks like. You can show them what it looks like, uh, and we try to do that. And you know, there you have different levels of success uh, with it. I mean, it's not a it's not a uh, a fail safe proposition. But I do think you can make guys better in that area. My assumption is when you're recruiting someone that you'd like to find someone that already has a strong will to win. How do you look for it? You know, that's one area where the numbers, you know, they don't they don't categorize that. I mean, how do you how do you put a number on that? So you have to watch and study and see kids in in different environments. And you know, the very first thing is does he for us play to win every time you watch him play? What level of success does his team have? You know, if you look at our guys, our guys have had a lot of success as amateur players, high school players. If you start to track and find guys where every time you turn and and watch their team, they're winning, there's a pretty good chance that guy has a a big impact on it. You know, how how a guy does that and impacts winning, everyone's different in that respect. But if across the board he wins, then he's got – those winning qualities that you can work with and hopefully enhance. Back to innovation. You know, one of the key things that when people are innovating, they have to be able to take risk. They have to be comfortable with the idea that they're going to try some things and and sometimes they might fail. You happen to have a job that probably is scrutinized closer than any other job out there. Every night you go out, you know, there's a score on the board. You get, it's a win or a loss. And you're fortunate enough to have many people who are confident they know how to do your job as well as you. Right. Um, but in the game of basketball, where it's changing and you have to innovate, how do you how do you deal with this need to take risk to innovate, and yet being judged really on the short term results? How do you come to grips with that? Taking risks is a part of the job, and you, you shouldn't take a risk or not take a risk based on what you think people are going to say. You should do that. Because you believe in it, you think it puts your your organization in the best possible uh, position to be successful, and then you have to live with those results. I mean, that's the big boy world we live in. If you feel like there's something that is right for the team, I'll give you an example. My third year on the job, we we had to win four out of our last five games to make the NCAA tournament, and we had a we had an older senior group. But that team hadn't necessarily won. And then we had some young guys that, you know, won a lot in high school. And so in the last part of the season, we made a decision to change this, completely change the starting lineup. And that was a risk. That risk paid off. Would I have been comfortable with making that decision? Uh, again, if it didn't turn out that way, where we finished the season strong, went to the NCAA tournament, yes, because I, w- I believed at that moment that's what was right. Not every decision you make is going to work out. You have to base your decisions on your belief, your study, the people that you're working with, 
and then you got to you got to run with it. Yeah, what's interesting is I I think what you're describing is what I call being unafraid of failure. The potential reward is the right thing to do, and you can live with the outcome. But when I meet people, especially in a corporate environment, so many of us grow up with these rules and boundary conditions, and we're actually being taught to manage risk and trying trying not to make mistakes and trying not to fail. So you're looking for people that, frankly, are wired like you. If you were translating your skill at, at, at recruiting people and you want to apply it to, hey, I'm going to try to help recruit young people that I think can not only play basketball, but I think have this ability to take risk and aren't afraid of failure, how would you look for that? Well, I think that that goes to the relationship and really getting to know who somebody is and are they willing to take risks or is it do you have to drive in the the slow lane all the time you know and and I think you you can only get a, an appreciation of where somebody is on that spectrum after really getting to know them and so like you said it doesn't you know the risk we're talking about is not taking a bad shot at the end of, the risk we're talking about like when push comes to shove are you going to be willing to follow your beliefs and the things that you study and do some things that are unconventional that if they don't work, people can criticize you. Are you willing to do that? Look, the people who have achieved the most throughout sport or business are generally people that are willing to to stick their neck out. So interesting, you said something about recruiting players that have had a lot of success winning. Do you ever worry that because of all that success, when they get to college and they're at a different level and they're playing in a league like the Big East, that they're going to probably face more failure than they've ever had before. And you worry about them making that transition because the first time you go through failure is not everyone reacts the same way. And so how do you how do you get through that or how do you how do you got, gauge that when you're recruiting these very successful people? Well, you know that regardless of if a kid to this point has experienced any major setbacks, failure, critiques, that it's coming. I've been fortunate to be around the best of the best, and I've seen the best of the best on their worst days. So the worst days happen for everyone. And one of the fun things about coaching is to help kids deal with that and look at failure as an opportunity instead of a destination. And that's a lesson that we have to constantly reinforce with our guys. We have guys that are high achievers, we have guys that for them are pleasers. And so when they don't do something to the level they're capable of or they feel like they're not pleasing someone, the the chance for them to reach a depth of being down is is high. Okay? So then what do we what do we do with that? Well, you have to educate guys that you know, not, you know, not doing what you think you're capable of each and every day is just part of growth. And you should welcome those days because it it can teach you about your blind spots. It can it can show you the areas that you need to get better at. And and there's there's areas for all of us like that. So embracing failure, uh, not setting out to fail, but embracing failure when it occurs and using that opportunity to become better, to become more is I think crucial for any player's development. One of the terms I've used uh, and I've heard others use is that failure is really about learning, which I think is what you call growth. If you learn from it, there's something to be gained from it. If you just let it hit you in the head, then you know you let it beat you. Right. Do you ever have trouble, um, you know, leading teams? 
I looked at each of my players on my team. They were individuals to me, right? It was a team, but I knew they had strengths and weaknesses and they were different. Some things were better at others. So I actually managed or, or led them differently. I had different boundary conditions, but what I would occasionally run into is the team, the other members of the team would struggle where it almost looked like there were different rules or boundary conditions between the players. And there were, but for very good reasons, there were different capabilities, there were different strengths. I'm sure that has to be a tension you deal with. How do you help players understand why it's different for different players? I mean, I think it's a great point, and it's a challenge that we all face uh, year to year with, with guys. In terms of myself and dealing with our players, you know, we, we treat everyone in our program uh, fairly. Um, that doesn't mean we treat everybody in our program the same because certain guys have earned the right uh, to have more rope versus other guys that are just coming in and we're learning about them. However, in terms of the way they're treated and the way they're coached, they're all going to be treated fairly. They're all going to be coached hard. They're all going to be held accountable. But guys, there's different level of talents. And so, you know, it's important that when you're holding somebody accountable, it's a way that they can, they can hear the message. And that's different for everyone. Some guys, some guys react uh, better to strict discipline. Some guys react better to, you know, an arm around them. Uh, so it's it's important to figure out what makes somebody tick and how you can help them uh, become the best they can be uh, within the, the collective unit. So your players probably all come to Marquette expecting that they're going to try to play professionally, right? That they're here for an education, but they're also here to prepare themselves to hopefully have a career in basketball. And while you know they all want to do that, and pretty much all of them will have that opportunity to play professionally somewhere – you also know that their basketball playing days are going to be relatively short. So what do you try to help them understand beyond basketball to kind of prepare them for life, you know, beyond the game? Oh, you know, obviously we want to uh, connect with them and their passion to play and maximize their talent and ability while understanding that having a career in basketball is extraordinarily difficult. And our guys are aware of that. If you look at the NBA, it's a global game. And there's 425 players. There's only 4,000 men who've walked the face of the earth who've played in the NBA. So your odds aren't very good, fellas. And we also educate them on European basketball. Like it's it's hard to to have a career in high level Europe where it's where it's worth it. So while we are trying to help them become the best they can be in basketball, I think educating them, uh, you know, about the realities of it. And then putting them in positions to where they may come here and, and basketball may be their only love at the time. We have to introduce them to other things that they love, whether that's giving back into the community and service. And our guys have done an incredible job of that. We, we won an award last year for the most service hours of any athletics team in the athletics department for the first time ever. So I was really proud of that. And so using their platform – in the community where guys learn to love that. And then, you know, becoming educated men, you know, and, and going to, to, Scott, to college is not just about taking college courses. It's about learning to think critically. It's about learning to become a better decision maker. It's about learning how to interact with, pe with people uh, from all walks of life. 
And those three skills, regardless of how many classes you loved or you didn't love, the critical thinking, the ability to be a good decision maker, and the ability to uh, thrive in a diverse environment, that's what you're going to have to do if you play professional basketball or anything else. And so for us, we talk about those things all the time and encourage it. And, and our guys, to their credit, have really embraced it, you know, and that doesn't mean they love basketball any less, but you can love more than one thing. We talked a lot about how we deal with failure and that you learn from it. Is there a failure that you've had in life that you learned a lot from that you can share with us? Yeah, you know, my freshman year at Duke was incredibly hard, you know, to the point where I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to survive as a college player, you know, there. And um, that was the year Coach K got sick, so he was only he was only the head coach for about a third of the season. And season one, that way downhill uh, after he he left. Uh, my high school coach that same year passed away. Uh, my dad was battling cancer. And so all of a sudden, you know, being a freshman in college is hard enough. You throw on top of that, you know, an athletics endeavor that's as challenging as, as anything that I ever uh, had encountered and was failing at it, in addition to personal stuff going on. You know, that was, that was a really hard year. And, you know, there were times I felt like quitting. And, you know, fortunately, that wasn't an option uh, in my parents' eyes. So I, I learned from it. And I learned the things that, you know, when I was able to step back away from it, like, okay, the initial instinct for most people when something goes wrong is to start pointing fingers. And when I became mature enough to look in the mirror and say, you know what, Th these are the things that I could have done that I had complete control over that maybe could have led to a different outcome. That ended up being probably the best thing for me is going through, you know, those those hard moments because I hadn't really experienced that. You know, I was salutatorian in my high school class. I was All-American uh, high school basketball player. I was an All-State soccer player. You know, you know, it just had things were, were good. And then I worked for those things, but I didn't really ever have like a time as a young athlete where, you know, you just got, you really, literally got knocked to the canvas. And it makes you tougher. It makes you appreciate it. It makes you look in the mirror and say, okay, this is why this happened. And if I don't want it to happen anymore, these are the things that need to change. When we did leadership development, the hardest thing to teach someone as they were trying to develop them as a leader is that we can send you to all the classes in the world. It's really a simple concept. The moment you realize leadership is about you and not the other person, that's the moment you start to really make progress in it. And so I think it's just a great analogy for people to keep in mind because too often people say, I want to be a leader. Why won't they follow me? And the answer is that's about you, not them. So I just thank you for the men, the young men you're developing and making Marquette, you know, a place that we can all be really proud of. Yeah, well, Marquette's a special place. And, um, you know, I get to be around special young men every day. And certainly they were raised incredibly well. So we benefit from that. But, you know, this is about more than just basketball. I was, I was very fortunate. The game has been incredibly good to me. And when I was their age, I would have said it was the, the big wins or, you know, the, the accomplishments and all that kind of stuff. But now, 20 years later, I don't think about, Occasionally, I'll think about games and moments, 
but I think about the relationships, the the thing that the the ability to use basketball as a vehicle to take you places that you otherwise wouldn't be able to go or meet people you otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to meet. If all we're talking about is drills and offensive philosophy and defensive philosophy, and they have a firm understanding of that when they leave here, but that's all they have an understanding of, then I would have failed. And so, you know, I appreciate being at a place that's so passionate uh, about our program and, and winning. But I also appreciate the fact that I work with and for people that understand that, you know, it's much more than just basketball. That's who Marquette is to me. You know, Marquette is about developing the whole person. And why shouldn't our basketball program be about that too? Well, I think you're doing a great job. And again, we're really proud to have you here and looking forward to a great season. And uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. I want to extend a big thank you to Marquette Basketball and Coach Wojo for joining me on Innovators on Tap. Our conversation was proof that you can find innovation in any domain, even sports. Teaching his players how to play within concepts instead of how to run a play is the perfect analogy for building teams that can innovate. In business and in sports, you will encounter the unexpected. This is when opportunities for innovation arise. And when that happens, you need people who can react, adapt, and find a better way. As the Jesuits like to say, we don't teach people what to think, we teach them how to think. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast will help us do just that. I want to thank the team at Go Get It Marketing and Media for their support and help with the launch of this podcast. We're always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey and developing your own innovator spirit. Let's go change the world.